listening to Footprints on Our Hearts, a podcast about baby loss, legacy, and learning to live again with me, Alison Ingleby. The baby loss community is one that no one wants to join, but together we can break the silence around baby loss and help each other navigate the rocky road that is grief, because all children leave footprints on our hearts. Hello and welcome to episode six of Footprints on Our Hearts. Just a very short introduction today as uh, when this goes out, I will be on holiday in the Yorkshire Dales, hopefully enjoying some nice relaxing time with family and uh, not having any issues with flooding or storms or winds or snow or any of that other weather that we've had over the past few weeks. Today, I've got an interview with Steph Wild for you. Um, Steph is a midwife and the chair and founder of Beyond Bee, a charity that she set up in memory of her daughter to provide free training to help healthcare professionals better support bereaved parents. And I think ever start, since I started this podcast, I wanted to speak to Steph to get her views on what it's like to be in that position of of being a midwife and then losing your own child and supporting other parents. I'm also a huge fan of the work that Beyond Be do. I think they do some really valuable work that has an impact on, you know, thousands of parents across the country who suffer a bereavement. So in the interview, we talk a bit about why Steph decided to become a midwife and her experience of baby loss leading up to her pregnancy. We also talk about her pregnancy with B and finding out that her daughter had a very rare brain condition, which led on to her having to make a, a really impossible decision. And I think termination for medical reasons is perhaps a taboo within the taboos of baby loss. And it's not something that's really talked about at all and must be incredibly, incredibly hard for the parents who have to make those incredibly difficult choices. So I'm really grateful that Steph was open to talking about that with me. And we have a a conversation around that and also about the impacts of um, B being stillborn before that 24 week date when she would have been officially registered as a stillborn baby and all the maternity leave and everything like that kicks in um and that just adds another complication and challenge I know for many parents who suffer that kind of loss at around that time in your pregnancy And we also talk about the challenges of going back to work as a midwife after losing your child and why Steph decided to set up Beyond B. Um, And you can find out more about them on their website and on Instagram. I will include all the links in the show notes. So I hope you enjoy this week's podcast episode and please do share it with your friends. Leave a review on iTunes or your podcast app and spread the word about the podcast. Enjoy the interview. Today I'm joined on the podcast by Steph Wild, who's the founder of the charity Beyond B, which she set up in memory of her daughter. Welcome to the podcast, Steph. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. And uh, you're in quite a unique position in terms of guests on the show, as you're both a midwife and a bereaved parent. So you have a foot in both camps. Um, And I wanted to start off by talking a bit about when and why you decided to become a midwife. So I always aim to work in something that would help people. That was always my plan. Um, And so I didn't know exactly where I would go with that initially. So I was 17 looking at my A-levels and I decided I didn't want to be a nurse um, because I wanted to be able to have a bit more control over the plans I made and to make my own decisions a little bit more. Um, And so I thought being a midwife sounds great. Um, And to be quite honest, I was always the child who behind the sofa when casualty was on so probably wasn't the best decision at 17 but um that soon changed uh once I applied and I actually got in first time of applications fantastic um and had you had much experience 
with baby loss through your job as a midwife before your own sort of more personal experience? So when I was a student, I gained a particular interest in it. And mostly that was because of experiences I'd had when working on a labour ward. I would a particular experience that probably pushed me more than anything. Um, there was a family who had come in and uh, their baby had sadly been stillborn. And the family had decided not to see their baby, uh, never to meet the baby, name the baby, know about the gender. Um, and I found that unusual. I was 18 um, and I couldn't comprehend that their decision at the time. So I wanted to better understand it. Um, and so I asked my mentor quite a few questions. Um, and I noticed in her notes that um, she was of a certain religion and the mentor turned around to me and says, it doesn't matter that's she's not going to see a baby. And for me, that was really important because I wanted to understand why this family felt that way. So um, I actually thought I'm going to make myself feel comfortable to question um, decisions that people make and also be able to do that in a supportive way. And so um, I looked into trying to do more so I actually started to support a um, baby loss support group that was based in the hospital um, along with one of the mentors that I worked with um, a completely different mentor than that one and um, so for years I actually supported that support group and um, learned about so many other people's experiences through that um, and also saw that they weren't always great um, and then once I qualified, I planned to go to a different hospital. I wanted to go to a bigger hospital that had um, the likelihood of a specialist um, bereavement role um, because that's what I wanted to pursue to do. So I actually made sure that I did anything possible to be able to get that role. Um, so whilst I was a student and once I qualified, if there was any kind of training available, I went on it if I could work an extra shift to pay for it um, so I literally sought out anything I could um, because I wanted to be someone who could make a difference to the families where just because someone didn't want to ask that question because they felt uncomfortable actually that could have changed their care. So are you a specialist bereavement midwife or a midwife with uh, who sort of has a particular interest in supporting bereavement care? So I never um, got to the point of being a specialist bereavement midwife. I just always had a specialist interest. Um, and probably around the time B died was probably around now. I would be hoping that I would be in that role. But obviously the plans changed a little bit now. Yeah, for sure. And I think just before we go on, can we come back to, I guess, your your experience in terms of what you've seen and people's and families reactions to baby loss because I found that really interesting what you said about that that family who who didn't want to see their child and you know that might have been for cultural reasons and often there is this perhaps old-fashioned view or a view that that some people have that obviously because it used to be a taboo and it used to be the case that you know you weren't given the option to to see your child that perhaps in some you know in some sectors of community or in some families that's carried on through so I guess what what's the I guess what's the range of experiences you've seen in terms of parents reaction um to whether they want to to see their child or spend time with their child and that kind of whole process um I think on the whole the vast majority of families have chosen to see the baby and spend time with the baby but it hasn't necessarily been the decision they've made first of all. Um, and sometimes that's required um, some discussion or something else to kind of break that barrier a little bit. But I think predominantly the main thing and what they all have in common is not necessarily a religion or a culture or it's just because they're scared and they don't know what their baby's going to look like or how the baby will feel in their arms or that the baby's not going to come out with five heads and look like an alien because that's what dead babies look like. It's actually just going to look like the baby you had in your mind, potentially a bit smaller than you'd imagined, maybe pinker skin. 
And so just by opening up those conversations and saying, what is it that's worrying you? Is there a reason you didn't want to see your baby? Is there something that particularly worried you? And sometimes just by asking that question, you totally change their perception. And then before you know it, they've spent three days with the baby and they've done all the memory making and they've got photos around the house all because you asked that one question. I think that's a really good point. And I can, you know, I can definitely relate to that in terms of my own experience. And I think, I think perhaps the other thing which I kind of had on the back of my mind was, was the question, well, what am I supposed to do? Like, like what's right and what's wrong in this situation? And, you know, I don't want to put people out or inconvenience people. And I'm not really sure. And I, and I think obviously when you, you know, when you hear your baby is dead and then you have to give birth to them and you have to go through that whole process, you're you're still in shock a lot at that point. So I think there is definitely a case of you don't know what you do want, as well as that fear of the unknown um, and perhaps, I guess, w- what is available, what, what are you allowed to do? I mean, that's a silly question. I think, and, and, you know, the me who I am today goes, well, that's stupid. Just ask for whatever you want. You know, you've got a right to have this. You've got a right to have that. But, you know, I'm, I'm very much, I don't break rules. And, you know, I, I like to know what, what are the guidelines and what am I supposed to do and what am I allowed to do? And I guess what's appropriate, what's not appropriate. So that was something that I definitely struggled with in terms of, I guess, my sort of decision-making and things. Yeah. And I think it doesn't necessarily lend itself to our comfort zone so we do we do want someone to go right these are the things you can have and you can choose but equally we think that when your baby's born alive you wouldn't ask someone if you can pick the baby up but when your baby's died you've got to ask permission Um, and that was actually a theme of our conference um, last year in 2019 it was called am I allowed to and it was about making sure that we emphasize how important choice was because if you don't give people the choice, how do they know they've got one? And so we need to make sure that we're advocating and empowering families to know that they can make a decision and they've got a choice and it's this, that or the other, rather than saying this is what happens and this is what's gonna, what we're going to do. Yeah, and certainly, and, and one of the things we found, which we did feedback to our hospital, was that when once we we found out that Sky had died, and you know we got sent away for a couple of days to after taking the pill to come back in, we didn't get told anything about what was available at the hospital and what they would do. Um, and I, you know, I went and hit Google because that's what I do, and and I found a load of useful stuff on the Tommy's website. But obviously, it's different with different hospitals, so. Um, you know, in terms of that sort of memory making piece or or what they had. And I know, uh, for example, I um, a, a friend of mine, she they had photographers c- come around and take photographs of them. And that wasn't something that was offered at a hospital, or at least not at that time that we were aware of. So I think there's, there's a lot of different things out there and different hospitals do it in different ways. Um, and I guess then, I don't know, perhaps if I'd known what was going to happen, I don't know. It's easy in hindsight, isn't it? <laughs> but you've done things differently, but it's, it's easy to say that. Whereas, yeah, when you're when you're in the moment, you're you're in shock and you're just taking it an hour at a time. I'm quite glad you've brought that up, really, because that's something that even I speak about as someone who's a midwife, but as my partner wasn't a midwife and was actually a clinical person, but not necessarily someone who had had any idea about baby loss, had no idea what would happen, how long it would take and all the processes. He had absolutely no idea and no one prepared him and no one sat down and said, this is going to happen next. This is how long it's going to take. And I felt that I lacked the advocation of that because everyone saw, oh, you're the midwife, you're not the mum. And actually my partner was the dad who knew none of this, who I had to sit down and talk to him like it was not happening to me. And that didn't have happened. So off the back of that and seeing how exactly what you said um, is the same for so many families. But equally as a health profession, a health professional, I completely appreciate that. It's so hard to sit down in front of a family and go, right, so you can do this, 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 this. Because you'd obviously look at us like, whoa, you're talking about far too much. And completely understandable because 
you're already not processing most of the information to begin with. Um, so we've developed a resource at the moment and it's still in development um, that we've tried to make sure that as many people who want to be involved and it will be it's a, and it will be launched again on our social media to ask for any more input and it's currently called the alternative birth bag and we don't know whether we're going to change that name yet um, but it's basically as it says on the tin with that that it will give you ideas as an alternative birth bag um, of the things to bring so bringing two of that teddy that you bought rather than the one send someone out for it do you want to go on a shopping trip because you've got that in mind and it's your focus do you want to contact a service like remember my baby who are a volunteer photography service because just because your hospital hasn't offered it doesn't necessarily mean they won't come in do so you could contact them um, and just other little things that that made a difference to me having a lavender oil with me at the time was useful because now that association of smell reminds me of my baby every time and it's actually quite a common smell so it was also really good for for instance your perineum because you've just pushed the baby out and it's sore down there so and also it helps you sleep so it's small things multi-purpose yeah <laughs> it's the small things that make such a big difference but someone can't always reel them all them things off at you but if you had that to take away and read and then had somewhere so we'd link people to go to our website where we'll put other things there too that they can then go I hadn't thought of that or oh I could do that or I don't want to do that but I will do that and it just gives you that someone saying you've got a choice and here you are you make it but equally if you don't want to we can help you. That sounds amazing and a really useful resource and yeah exactly what I would have needed because I think and and again obviously it's going to depend I guess at what gestation you are but you know Sky was Sky was 26 weeks so she was relatively early I hadn't even thought about hospital bags or looked to anything like that um, I didn't even know you know what happens during an induction you know because um, I hadn't you know I hadn't even started thinking about giving birth yet you know it's still months away <laughs> you didn't have to think about that kind of stuff um, and yeah so one of the things that I was looking at was obviously what you take into hospital but then all the lists you get are presuming you're going into hospital to give birth to a living child so it's you know you take you know baby grows and nappies and things and and I honestly I didn't even think well I could still take a baby grow for her like that didn't that didn't even crossed my mind I think we took a blanket but the hospital ended up giving us a blanket and they ended up dressing her in something which I'm not sure was what I would have chosen to dress her in but you know I just wasn't even thinking straight at that point so um yeah yeah I think that's a really really valuable resource that you're developing okay let's move on to talk about B then and about your experience and how she inspired this amazing legacy um how was your journey to get pregnant with her or how did your pregnancy go so um B was a surprise pregnancy um and so very much not planned um and I appreciate how um how lucky I am in a sense that I have been someone who's got pregnant easily um and I never have taken that for granted really because you never know until you get to that point that that will happen um and really my pregnancy to most people probably wouldn't be perceived as great um I had really bad hyperemesis so I was vomiting continuously uh, um I actually lost 10 kilos in the first like 12 15 weeks oh my goodness that is not supposed to happen <laughs> yeah no so I actually worked still and was having um, injections whilst on shift just to stop me being sick because I don't like being off work. Oh, my goodness. I mean, there's dedication to your job and then there's taking it, you know, to the extremes. Yeah. So but overall, once kind of that, it, it did subside after probably about 16 weeks. Um, and then I did really enjoy it. I, I absolutely loved being pregnant and everything about it. Um, and so overall, really, my pregnancy was was lovely. And then at what point did you find out or get an inkling that that things weren't going to plan? So we went for the 20 week scan 
and um, we um, we knew obviously all about what the scan was and why we were having it um, and so we started to have the scan um, and she um, very quickly worked out that we both were health professionals because of the things we were coming out with so she was chatting away to us carried on with the scan and um, got towards the end of the scan and she said um, there's a part of the brain that I can't quite see and it might be that um, the gestation is a little bit wrong we might got the dates a little bit out so it's, it is only a small part so it might just be that but equally it might be because it's not there and so what I'd like to do is get another sonographer to come in and repeat the scan so she did she went ahead and the other sonographer came in and repeated the scan and she had the same findings so she'd said that she couldn't see it either so we were told that um, we'd be referred through to the fetal medicine unit and that referral can take around a week so she took us to another room outside into a basically a quiet room which most of us know what one of those is especially um, bereaved parents um, got taken to one of those and um, 10 minutes later she came back in with about 10 scan photos because that makes up for the bad news um, and um, and then about half an hour later a registrar who's one of the like mid-level doctors came in and said one of the consultants is going to scan you now which there's not many perks of working in the NHS if I'm honest but it was one of them so um, about another half an hour later we were taken through to the fetal medicine unit and he said I'm going to repeat the whole scan um, and obviously got to a head last so he was scanning away um, got to a head um, and he pressed on quite significantly more than I'd noticed previously and I just thought maybe that's just a technique I don't know um, and so we could see the scan in front of us in the screen and he said okay um, I see where they were coming from but there you go there there it is there's everything um, and so he said you can return to routine care and go back to whatever scans and things you were having as planned um, wrote up the scan report and then he turned around to us and said if you would like to, you can have a MRI scan for reassurance. And to this day, I still don't know whether that was a, I work there. So that's a little extra offer because I was lucky to be in a facility that had that. But obviously not everyone gets that offer. Or whether it was because that's a routine thing to do, I wasn't really sure. Um, so the MRI scan wouldn't be for two weeks because obviously MRI scans a few and far between anyway and especially to have a fetal one done um, so we went on holiday um, for a week came back off holiday I obviously went on to night shifts um, couldn't get the night shift off so I had to go for my MRI scan before my shift um, and so we went for the scan um, had everything done and they said um, the results will be back in two to three days um, and so on the Friday, um, this was the third day, I'd finished my night shifts that morning, went to sleep, um, woke up and we'd planned to go to the local shopping centre and then we were going to the house we were about to move into. Um, we had measurements to do, sofas to buy, nurseries to plan and so we thought we'll go and do the measurements um, and then we can get that all in motion. And so um, we'd just been to the shopping centre, we had baby clothes in the back of the car and my phone starts to ring um, and I'm in the passenger seat. So I answer the call and um, the midwife on the other end of the phone goes, I'm really sorry, but we weren't expecting this. Um, but your baby has a brain condition and it's called schizencephaly. And we think that it may also be affecting the optic nerve. And the part of the brain that they'd not seen, then had seen, was called the cavum septum pellucidum. And that actually wasn't there. And she said, and I said, okay, so what now? And she said, well, we've made an appointment for you on Monday at 10.30, so we'll see you then. This was Friday at 2 p.m. And did you, did you know the midwife then? Did you know the staff? Was this the hospital you worked at? 
so this is a hospital I worked at, but I hadn't really had any like links with there. She knew who I was and she knew I worked there. And I said, can we not see anyone sooner? And she said, no, because there won't be cover because it's the weekend. Or not even speak to a consultant. So you've, you've basically just been told your baby has a part of their brain missing and you have to wait for three days to find out more? Yeah. So I then had to put the phone down. My partner sat in the driving seat looking at me like, because he's wondering what questions I'm asking, what does that mean? And I tell him. He then bursts into tears, understandably. And so I say, right, get in the passenger seat. So I walk around the car, get him out the driving seat. I start to drive and then realise I can't just drive home because I need to ring the estate agent because we're about to go there. So I have to ring them to say, we're not coming because there's been an emergency. Um, I'll explain more another time. And so we head home, hit every red light, obviously, and um, get home and he rings the fetal medicine unit again and asks for the whole report to be read out and starts writing it down. And he's, he's a doctor, so it's just his thing to do. And so he wrote everything down and he then started to research and that was his way of processing. And clearly most people know you can't fix a brain. It's, it's not something that we can do very much about and with the extent of of how severe it was. Um, and they'd also said that she had open lip schizencephaly, so it's actually the rarer version of it. Um, and it affects one in 100,000 people. So it basically equated to her potentially never walking, talking, eating, drinking, communicating. And we didn't ever know how severe those would be but equally she'd have seizures all the time um numerous times a day um potentially need stents putting into her brain um so obviously numerous surgeries numerous admissions um just constant constantly at hospital having invasive procedures and not having a life you ever plan for your baby to have not being able to tell her why this is happening while you're being stabbed in your leg again why and don't even know if she'd understand and we knew just off the information we knew that that's not what we could do for her and so how we like kind of like to word it and see that there are quite a few things that say it but we only wanted her to know love because you don't want your baby to know pain and if we could take that away then why wouldn't we so we knew that going into that appointment on Monday, what our plan would be. And so um, obviously that would basically be defined as medical termination. Um, I much prefer the term compassionate induction um, for that because it's compassionately done. She's having the labour induced and I'm not terminating my baby because I don't want to get rid of her. I want her, but I want her to have a good life too. So what when you went in on the Monday then, so obviously you're and and because of I guess your medical understanding, you're able to understand the terminology and, and you know what it means. So I guess you've almost prepared yourself a bit. What what did the consultant say to you when you went in on the Monday? Did they give you a choice? Did they give you a recommendation? So um we arrived there and um they the consultant who'd done that scan had said I'm really, really sorry. We obviously weren't expecting this. Um, and he almost was about to kind of say, so you've got some options. Um, one of which was to see um, someone who was a, a neurosurgeon, for instance. And we were like, but we know you can't fix it. You can't just put half a brain back in, unfortunately. So we kind of went, no, thank you. <laughs> Um, and equally then said we already know what decision we've made um, to which there are a couple of options with medical termination and at the time I was 23 weeks um, exactly on that day um, and he'd said to us um, if that's the decision we've made that what would happen is that we would take the tablet as you said um, that tablet then stops your placenta functioning as normal so your body doesn't think it's pregnant and 
it prepares you for labour. Then you go home usually 24, 48 hours, come back in and then have a procedure called KCL done, which I'll explain in a moment, and then um, and then have an induction from there. So KCL is um, an injection that's delivered directly under ultrasound um, and directly into the baby's heart so that they, they're not born alive, essentially. And is, is that done to reduce any stress, you know, I guess? What, why do they do that as opposed to go through an induction process? Was that a choice or is, is that just something that happens in this situation? So most of the time it's a bit of a, a legal factor because, um, because basically um, if a baby's born alive, they're classed as a neonatal death if they're then born alive and die but because obviously I was 23 weeks and so it's a very it is a very grey area and because 24 weeks is our actual viability limit in the UK but we are now starting to see more and more babies being um, resuscitated at much earlier gestations 23 weeks and sometimes even 22 weeks um, and we actually turned around to him and said, I don't want to have KCO because we want it be to die with us, not through the hands of somebody else, um, no better word for it. And the Royal College of Gynecologists, um, it's a recommendation, is that any baby born above 21 plus six weeks gestation has the KCL procedure unless they die of the condition that that they would be being terminated for as as it were so um but very early so basically the result would be that she'd have died from the prematurity not because of condition that with a brain because that wouldn't have killed her but it would have been Mm -hmm. prematurity so that was the gray area and he actually turned around to me and said well i don't want to end up in coroner's court if you decline kco and there's there's no there's no way you can you know sign an indemnity form or whatever to have to take control and have this choice of what happens to your child. So I actually asked to see the neonatal team because um, I asked him to leave and saw a different consultant who was much better and actually turned around to me and said, "What I don't want for you, Steph, is for you to see your baby being resuscitated in front of you." when that's not the decision you've made for her, which is how the conversation should have gone. But equally, I said I wanted to see the neonatal team because I needed to hear it from the specialists of the babies, not the obstetricians. So we sat around for two hours and no one came. And I appreciate they might have been needed on the unit, but it was just a very difficult situation. And the be-all, end-all of it ended up being that because legally it's not... 24 weeks is our viability age and it's so grey as to what they do that basically it would be subjective as to who was on at the time, whether they'd allow my baby to die with us or be resuscitated. And after waiting for so long, I couldn't make that be a risk because if that was totally against everything I wanted or we wanted for her and she then died in the hands of someone else because they resuscitated her and... I just couldn't allow for it. And they would try and resuscitate her because they felt that was their legal duty was to try to keep this baby alive, even though you all know that it's not it's not going to happen or it's not going to do her any good and it's against your wishes. Exactly. They would, would have done that. And even though realistically we knew she wouldn't have had a good quality of life. And that was the whole reason we were going down this route to begin with. So it was just literally going to be whoever let, stood in my corner or didn't would be and I'd have to find that just after giving birth and then having that battle on my hands and I thought I can't even do that to her let alone me that's a I mean that is an impossible choice to make really and I'm really impressed by how how brave you were to stand up to them actually and to go no I want to speak to someone else and I want to speak this team and actually in that situation where you're covered in, you know, you're completely in shock and 
you know, I guess you're, well, I don't know, perhaps my natural reaction would be, well, I, I do what the experts tell me for you to really kind of push back against that must have been, well, I think, I think you're really brave to have fought your daughter's corner and fought your corner in that way. Thank you. It was, I think it, it was really hard because you've got the battle of, I don't want to be this massive pain, but equally she's got rights and I need to do something for her. But equally, again, kind of at the end of the day, this isn't all my area of expertise and there are things that people know that I don't. And so it's trying to wave the right flags, but equally at the end of the day it was all about her and I needed to do the best by her and that was my only way that I was going to get to parent her so I needed to do it right where I could yeah so so you went so you took that decision went for that process so you essentially have this injection um which stops his heart and then you go through a normal sort of induction process as anyone else would yeah yeah so exactly that and I decided they asked if I wanted some time to wait afterwards um, and I decided not to. I wanted to go ahead straight away because with my clinical knowledge, I knew that being in a warm environment and having died, she would start to change and I needed her out as quickly as I could get her out. So I wanted to start straight away. Yeah. Um, and in terms of because of your previous experience, and I guess you you knew more than the average, you know, first time parent going into this. Did that help you in terms of understanding what to expect and what support you could ask for and things like, you know, the memory making and what you wanted to do with B after she was born? So I think it helped in some degree because I actually sat down with my partner and I sat down with family and I went through everything with them and almost like prepared them because someone had to and it wasn't going to be the staff clearly um and I I knew what I wanted and I think I took from the guidance I've tried to give families in that take everything I can because I might not want it and it might feel uneasy and some of it I might be like oh I don't know if I do want it but if I've got it in 10 years time I'm not going to regret it if I then say I really wish I'd had that so I took from that that opportunity and seeing other families having come to a support group in 10 years and say, do you know if there's any way I can get a photograph? And I'm like, did you have any taken? And they're like, not that I'm aware of, but I think they'll be in my notes and they haven't been. And I thought, I can't, I can't be that family. And if anything, at least their baby has taught me something. And there were also, it was also difficult because my partner's perception and my perception were completely different because this is something I've been around a lot and I know that it is normal to take a picture of your dead baby and I know that is and I know the beautiful and I know that that is normal whereas for him he was like this is really weird why would we do that and I also understand why people think that because we don't tend to do that with an adult death or it's not talked about and you don't might not have seen your friend whose baby's died on Facebook but it happens and we do that and it it is a common thing you just might not have been surrounded by it so it becomes weird to you so it was just making sure that for me I said I want to do everything and then at least if we've got it I can't regret it and it didn't make everything comfortable to me for instance we got 3d cast done and I could not watch her have them done. And they were as gentle as possible. She was respected. She had a dad involved while they were done. But it didn't make it okay for me to watch. Because I just couldn't tolerate it. So it doesn't mean that it wasn't hard as well. But equally I was prepared that there were those options there. Mm-hmm. And I think, yeah, I think that what you said it kind of goes back to, I guess, what I was saying about about what this expectation and lack of knowledge is around around baby loss and you know what your what the expectation is, what you're expected to do, what you're expected not to do, you know. And I think if you haven't been through the experience or you don't know someone who's been through the experience, then you might think all of it is crazy. But when you ha- when you do go through it, then then you realise actually, and and maybe not at the time, but as you say afterwards, actually how important that can be in terms of the healing journey and kind of I guess accepting your role as a parent of a child albeit not 
a living child. Um, can I just go back, if you don't mind, just to talk about her gestation again? So as a midwife, you know this 24-week cutoff, um, which in the UK, for anyone who's listening who's not in the UK, so that separates what is legally defined as a late miscarriage versus a stillbirth. And that means things like if, if it's classed as a stillbirth, you get a stillbirth certificate. If it's a late miscarriage, you don't legally, you don't get a, you know, any legal record of your baby um, that your baby existed. Um, it's also associated with a date from which you can claim maternity pay if your baby's still born. Did her being born a few days before that gestation affect what support you received? And do you feel like it affected your loss in any other way? It definitely did, but I don't think I thought about it. And I wish someone had advocated this before. So for instance, I actually had a break in service um, only uh, just like a year before. Um, for It was five weeks of break in service. That entitled me to not um, actually get full sick pay. I could only have sick pay for three months because I wasn't allowed maternity pay even though I categorically asked my manager at the time I actually asked my manager to come to the room because I was I was so worried about it that I said I need reassurance of where I'm at so at least in my head I can each prepare myself to come back in three months or I know that I can have longer or can I work holiday pay or whatever how do I work it um and so I was told don't worry about it you'll get full sick pay and that didn't happen Absolutely not. I got a phone call, I think about 10 weeks or eight weeks, something like that, in down the line, saying, we just want you to know that in a couple of weeks' time, you'll actually go down to half pay. And so that categorically was not what I was told. And so I then became quite resentful towards the person who said, even though I put everything on the table and said, this is where I'm at and I know why I shouldn't be, but where do I stand and so I was just it, it had to obviously happen that way Um I obviously didn't get a birth certificate or a death certificate Um I was lucky that I got a for Lewis memory box but for some reason the memory box didn't have a certificate in that they normally have so that was never filled in or if it was taken out it wasn't put back I don't know so I never actually got anything until a month down the line, my bereavement midwife had recognised that that was a difficult thing and did make something. But when you receive it a month down the line after mentioning it, I appreciate the thought, but it was like, well, I wanted to acknowledge when she was born. And yeah, it's not the same. Didn't happen. And so, yeah, and then obviously I didn't get maternity leave, which actually affected me more so because I never planned to make a charity, obviously, until B died. And then when I did, because I was on sick pay, I wasn't allowed to do any, any voluntary work because I was on sick pay. Oh, my goodness. This is ridiculous. But if I'd been on maternity leave, I could have done all the, the voluntary work I, I wanted. And my first day back, I was actually... Um, we would technically call it discipline because I had to tick a box to say I had done some voluntary work in my sick time um, and was told that I shouldn't have done, even though actually that time was holiday pay. And despite the fact that, you know, this could have been beneficial for your mental health and actually preparing you to be able to come back to work and, and kind of function, that that seems, yeah, I have I had no idea that that, that, that was even a thing. And I guess going back to work for you must have been incredibly challenging and emotional, not just going back sort of so soon, you know, while you're still very much in that kind of those dark days of grief, but also going back to the role you were going back to. How how did you find that and how how did you manage it? So for me, work has always been like a obviously a big part of my life. And for me, I wanted to go back because I was at home on my own. I, that wasn't normal for me to be at home so much and so going back to work was almost my safe place and I did want to go back but also recognise that this may be a very difficult transition because of the job I do um, and so I 
had a meeting before I went back to work and said, um, can I go into a non-clinical role? And I was told I could, but they said that they didn't know how long that would be for because there wasn't necessarily a job for me to do that or so I would have to come back clinically. Um, and so I did go back and then I actually recognised that wasn't the time I should be going back. I found it was too difficult and it was actually before B's due date. So I decided to take another month off at half, at, at half pay. And thankfully, my partner was supportive enough that he could um, financially support me for that other month. And then not long after I, after another month, I went back to work again. And because I'd had that break, if I'd only actually gone back to work, I think, for five days. And then because it wasn't a full three months, I wasn't entitled to a phased return. So I was also only allowed to work non-clinical for... Um, I think it was like a week, a week and a half I worked non-clinical um, because that was classed as my phase return. So I went back to that and worked full time in the office for five days. Then the week after I did like two days non-clinical, three days clinical, but working alongside someone, but still clinical. And, and then after that, that was it. I didn't have anyone ask me to come and have a meeting or see how I was doing was this okay was it not did I need any additional support um and I just pretty much got on with it and I just thought well this is how it is so I'm just going to carry on um I then checked my online roster and only about six weeks after going back it had said that I was about to go to the I was working on a labor ward that's where I've been based I was going to the postnatal ward so um, I'd been on the labour ward at this point for about three years um, mm -hmm. instantly so it was a bit of a weird change so I'd emailed the manager and said are you aware that this is happening um, I don't feel like it's appropriate at the moment um, so is there something we can do about it I didn't get an email response and then I saw the manager at a handover at the beginning of a shift one day so I mentioned it to her and she said, yeah, unfortunately, there's nothing we can do about that. Goodness. And you'd expect, I mean, you'd expect these people to understand more than, you know, you know, perhaps a regular employer or an office job or something, you know, who has no experience or concept of what baby loss is like. These are people who are kind of dealing with it day in, day out. Um, and it sounds like you had pretty much no support or or backup, even when you had really quite reasonable grounds to not want to be moved exactly um so I actually took that hire um to somebody above that person and they said to me that um immediately I was I was not going to move I would stay on that ward where I was and that would be for at least 12 months subject to reviewing that um so it was all changed on my online roster everything was fine and I felt like I was at my nice constant and I was coping so and I, that's what I needed just this constant is I knew where I was at so then a couple of months later on my roster again it come up that in the November I was due to move to an area that I'd never worked in um, which was um, basically for people who have elective cesarean sections um, I'd never worked there like for a long time I'd done the odd shift on there um and so I raised this again to I think I actually ended up in the end emailing three different people because I wasn't getting responses or someone would say you need to speak to this person and so I emailed three different people didn't really get any response so I emailed again again no response and I thought I'm just going to go with it because no one's listening so I'll just see what happens the date that I moved ended up being a week after B's first birthday and I went and I changed manager changed team didn't I knew who the people were that were in that team but I didn't know them um and I worked a lot on my own because you often are in theatre so you are really on your own as a, as a midwife you're not really around you're around a theatre team who often are working quite independently anyway um so there were also a lot of rainbow pregnancies pregnancy after loss who come through there 
um, because a lot of people do prefer an elective section, understandably. So there were a lot of, so they also the emo emotional turbulence of all this as well. And then I found that um, after a few weeks and just feeling like no one's listened and I'm just feel alone, I broke down and I literally sobbed like I've never sobbed before. Um, and eventually got taken into an office by um, another manager that I knew. Um, she then got the bereavement midwife, got the manager that I had at the time, started chatting to me and I was just like, I just feel like I've not been listened to or this is all too much. And I've, I'm not really a crier, so this was a shock for a lot of people because I can cry. Um, and so they were, and I was, I couldn't even speak. I was sobbing that much. Um, and so they then got the, um, the person who had gone above, um, like the person who, had helped me before she came and um I explained the situation how I felt like I'd not been listened to and I said basically regardless of the fact that people are busy and I appreciate how busy everybody is but it's no excuse to not reply to my email when I'm asking for help because no matter how busy you are that's zero and she then actually said to me that only a week before I took him um, a week before um that I'd started on that ward area. I had work, I took annual leave and I actually worked at the beginning of the week doing some extra shifts because I just wanted these birthday weekend off. But I thought that guarantees me the week. And if I'm not up to it, I don't have to work. And I chose to work earlier in the week. So I'd worked a night shift um, on a triage department. So someone had come in in labour. They asked me to transfer her to... Um, a midwifery led area I took her up there she was with a partner she was laboring and all of a sudden it dawned on me that a year ago today I was in labor and it just like hit me and I was in this room with just them and as much as it was lovely I was just like no I'm so close to just losing it um so I came out of the room for five minutes spoke to some of the staff on that unit because they'd asked me to stay at the time and I said I'm really sorry but this is the situation most people who I work with knew my situation and it, I just can't do this today is there someone who could switch out with me um, and care for this family and wasn't a problem carried on went back to where I was working this same person then brought up that situation and got told that she was made aware of it and why am I complaining about working in the area that I'm working now? Because I clearly can't look after labouring women. That's ridiculous. How to make someone feel even worse about themselves. So I said, I've worked on a labour ward for months and months and months now, and even years before that. Yet that was one isolated event because of... On one particular day as well, for a particular reason, yeah. And at the time, I just didn't have the words to say anything, so I didn't. And I just, she said to me, I think you need to actually take some time away and decide what it is that you need or you want. So I actually went home. Um, and at first I was like, right, I'll go back tomorrow and carry on. And then I thought, no, I need to have someone listen to me. I need a plan in place. I need to work out what's going on in my head and what what the issue was. And I think I came, I turned around to her and said, the issue I had was not that, I was caring for somebody in labour, but when it was, and that's a very isolated event. And actually, when that was raised three weeks ago, wouldn't it have been better to, rather than say, oh, clearly can't, Steph clearly can't look after someone in labour, shouldn't she have gone, oh, I wonder if she's okay? Should I ask her if she's okay? Not, oh, she can't do that. And I just thought that was where you've not noticed clearly potentially a red flag um so I then said I need a plan and I need to get things in place better um and so I ended up having six to eight weeks something like that off work mostly because they wanted me to go to occupational health and I couldn't get an appointment because it was around Christmas period and so it took longer even though I wanted to be back in work I did go back and the plan just never 
despite having had a plan, it never actually went to plan. And um, I eventually left my post in September last year because I always like to tell people it's, and I did at the time, that because I want to focus on the charity. And I do, I really do, because I love the charity. But I still have to work full time to, to make this charity work as a midwife because I'm not paid for this role. But I left because of that, not because of the charity, but at least I do have the charity to almost use as an excuse. But that was the real reason. That's a, a really shocking story to me anyway. Um, and I'm sorry you were treated like that. That does lead us nicely on to talk about Beyond Me, which you set up in 2018. So could you tell us a bit about what the charity is aiming to do and why you set it up? So we set up in January 2018. So it was nine weeks after B died that the charity wow. started. Yeah, so my plan, obviously, as I've had a lot of involvement with baby loss and I've always wanted to change things. And I also recognise from the health professional side that how are we supposed to do things the best if we're not being trained to do it? Because as a student, I got two hours where a bereavement midwife came into um, an afternoon and that was all, that was my bereavement training and apparently that's done. And most people I know have had very similar, if not even that, they've never been exposed to a bereaved family because people either protect them or they just say, oh, no, 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 you need you need to get your deliveries. So no, no, no. Um, and so they've not had any exposure. Then suddenly they're qualified and here you go, here's a bereaved family and you've got to practice. That's not how it should be. So I thought, how do I make this better? Um, and at first I thought I'll run a conference I know quite a lot of people in the baby loss field I can probably put a conference on and then I thought one day is not good enough and it's not going to train enough people and then I thought training is so inaccessible where there is training it's expensive where there is training it's not always good enough and it's not specific enough Um, not always delivered by the appropriate people and I thought I'm not saying I'm the best at what I do because I'm certainly not there's always room for improvement but I've got a certain level of knowledge professionally I've certainly got a level of knowledge personally I've got experience that I've just had through people I've met and also I've now got a platform to be able to create and so I thought I'm going to try and make sure people can get training and it be accessible. So the plan was always that it would be free. So um, Beyond B was created. So it was Beyond B because it was exactly that, Beyond B. Um, it was always going to be about B because that was the whole reason it was started, but it would always go beyond her. And it's actually about everybody else, but she's allowed that to be about everyone else. So I didn't want it to just be her because there's so many people involved now that it isn't just about her, it is about them. Um, but she's made that be the difference. So um, we've basically set about to, initially it was, I spent what money I had in my bank and bought dolls and my partner thought I was insane by having dolls in the spare bedroom and just not being fully aware of what I was going to do. Um, and then basically just put together a program that I'd wrote myself and um, it went from a 10 to 4 study day to what's now a 9 to 5 study day. And so it's primarily that we, we raise awareness through social media mostly, putting posts about personal aspects, so things that I've actually experienced and things that other people have experienced so that it allows people to see that side that it's not just it's not just this or it's not just that and actually there's more to it than what you might see in the media or on the TV for instance um, and then also study days so we deliver study days anywhere in the UK um, we've pretty much um, tried to make sure that they're always funded so the first year I did eight study days um, and we didn't charge anyone for them um, last year we did 42 study days um, and so we're very thankful to for Lewis who funded half of those study days for us um, and then we've funded the others through just literally we're the ones who packed bags and did Tough Mudders and ran 
marathons and things like that and whatever we could do to just raise funds to keep them going and then this year we've done the same we've also we were already fully booked for the 40 funded study days for this year before the end of last year so we've now tried to make sure that we enable people to still access them by um being able to book and they can fundraise for them or um or donate funds or do whatever to fund a day but they'll only ever cost what it physically costs us so we don't make a profit we'll just make them as accessible as we physically can do so that anyone can access them um so in addition to the 41 40 study days that we've we've made sure that we'll fund every year there's also a way to go around that and fund your own and also allows families they can do them in memory of their baby and we run one conference every year that is the very same concept um so we want it to be free so we we link with a midwifery society at a university so um that it basically gets students involved as well um and opens up a platform for them to engage with us and also throughout the UK so we link with them and host that that's amazing and you I had a look at your online diary and you have a huge number of study days and things going on and you're working full time how how do you mentally I guess physically and mentally juggle all these things while your own grief journey must still be ongoing are there times when you just feel like you need to take a step back when it all gets overwhelming there's there has been times and I think it's been very much a learning curve um there were there, there there were times so like in the in the first year where it was around B's birthday and I recognised that that's not a good time for me because it's very real. So the following year, I then always make sure I book three weeks off around her birthday, and I actually went away last year. So and then just recognising when things are too much or when you should pass things over. So it was it was even the basics of managing the finances that's not what I should be doing I should pass that to someone else so I don't think about that and trying to make sure that you ask for help and someone can help with emails or they can cover that certain role or um just yeah sometimes just saying would you mind doing that so that I can not do this that day or just yeah it's just it's been a learning curve because I'm not very good at I'm very good at doing everything because that's how I am and clearly people know that that's how I am um but recognizing that it's okay to ask for help and whether that is sometimes saying I can't do that study day or I can do that or can you do this so I can have that day off um but equally I've also made sure that we've we've set a cut off for how many we do um in a certain week um and also thinking about like travel times and things so I only do so much and then what I've tried to do as well is now that I I'm in control of my work because I work for a, an agency as a midwife instead now that I've pretty much made sure that I don't really work weekends so when most of my friends and my family are off I'm off which I never had before because I worked a lot of weekends so it's getting that balance and being like no we've changed so that all of our emails and social media aren't answered on the weekend so it can wait and at study day I know it's everyone wants to get them booked but it's not urgent from Friday to Monday to wait so we people do wait and thankfully people are very supportive of that and they're happy to um yeah and it, it is really important because you can't look after I mean it's a cliche but you can't look after other people if you don't look after yourself and I think I think also particularly perhaps when it's something so close to you, you know, it's it's something you're doing for B, it's it's the way you can parent her, then perhaps there is a tendency to go, well, I should be doing everything I possibly can. But actually what you know, what B would want you to do is to be able to look after yourself and have have that time away from everything and that separation because you can't you can't be involved in this twenty four seven. You just you can't do it it's 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 too overwhelming and that that grief can become too overwhelming so um it sounds like you've obviously a learning curve but you've got to a really sort of sensible and balanced place with that and I think also I mean I think this whole 
episode of the podcast and what we've talked about has emphasized just how important and valuable the work you're doing is and how varied you know bereaved parents experiences can be um so thank you for doing all of the work that you do and we are about our time so thank you very much for sharing your story um, and also telling us about beyond b could you just before we finish tell people where they can find out more about beyond b online and if they want to donate or help support your efforts in any other way so we are across basically all social media um so we're on twitter facebook and instagram so you can find us just by searching beyond b charity um, and then we also have a website, so that's www.beyondb, and that's B-E-A, .co.uk. Um, and all the information and information about donating, fundraising opportunities is also on there too. Fantastic. And I will put all those links in the show notes. Thank you so much for coming onto the podcast, Steph. It's been a really great conversation. Thank you so much for having me. I've really appreciated it. And I'm looking forward to following the future ones too. Thank you for listening to this episode of Footprints on Our Hearts. Please help me break the silence around baby loss by sharing the podcast with your friends and leaving a review on iTunes. You can follow me on Instagram at Footprints on Our Hearts and Twitter at Sky's Footprints. For detailed show notes and to support the podcast and help me raise money for Tommies, please visit our website, footprintsonourhearts.com. <laughs>